0: Welcome to another edition of the
1: 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. My book this evening is an amazing monster of a book is probably the best way to describe it. It's called Black Box Thinking and it's by Matthew Said, I think is how I would pronounce his name. So... Uh, I say it's a monster only because there's so much in it and we were talking earlier about how do you actually condense a book so that you can tell people in summary what it's about and the main takeaways from it and this was very challenging for me. So it's a book about how we respond to failure really both as organizations and institutions but also as individuals and if we choose to respond differently, we can have very different success in the world. That's essentially the message in the book. So I've read it twice. I read it the first time and I was very interested because at a sort of theoretical level, I was thinking about the institutions I've worked in as a nurse. Lots of the examples given in the book were, yeah, I'd come across them a lot. Um, So in some ways it was interesting. That's about as much as it was and fascinating. But then I think about always when I read a book, I want to understand if I'm reading something to learn it, the learning only comes full circle when I can really bring what I've learned into my behavior every day. So I decided to read it a second time with a filter on how does this in, in affect us really as individuals rather than just as institutions or corporations or as a culture in general. So, um, if it's okay, and it's going to take a few minutes of the review, I'm actually going to read how it starts, because it's a very dramatic start to the book. And I'm going to re- reference this particular piece as I'm explaining what happens in the book. So, bear with me for a few minutes, and hopefully I don't put you all asleep while I'm doing it. I'm going to paraphrase bits of it to make it shorter. On the 29th of March, 2005, Martin Bromley woke up at 6.15am and made his way to the bedroom of his two young children, Victoria and Adam, to get them ready for the day. They all went into the kitchen and were followed a few minutes later by Elaine, their mum. She'd snatched a few extra minutes in bed. She was 37 years old and had worked in the travel industry before becoming a full-time mum. She'd been suffering from sinus infections and was told that the best thing to do was have a routine operation to put it right. Don't worry, the risks are tiny, the doctor put, told her. At 7.15 that morning, they left home. The kids chatted in the car and Martin and Emily were very relaxed because the doctor had lots of experience, the anaesthetist, the same, and the hospital had great facilities. They waited in the hospital room, and just before 8.30, the head nurse, Jane, arrived to wheel Elaine off down to theatre. Are you ready, Jane said. Bye, see you later, guys, Elaine said. She was wheeled into the pre-operating theatre, and Dr. Anderton, the anaesthetist, put a small straw-shaped tube called a cannula into her the vein in the back of her hand and gave her the anaesthetic. Anesthetics are powerful drugs. They don't just send a patient to sleep, they also disable some of their functions, such as breathing. And when that happens, breathing is assisted during surgery by a laryngeal mask. But there was a problem. Dr. Anderton couldn't get the mask into Elaine's mouth. Her jaw muscles tightened. It happens a lot during this time. So he gave her additional drugs to try and relax her mouth even more. At eight thirty seven two minutes after being put under, she was beginning to turn blue. Her oxygen stats had fallen to seventy five per cent, and anything below ninety is statistically low at eight forty one He switched to a tried and tested method called tracheal intubation, standard protocol, but he hit another snag. He couldn't see the airway at the back of her throat. normally, it's a neat triangular hole vocal cords on either side usually easy you just push the tube in he pushed but he couldn't get it in by 8:43 her oxygen saturation had dropped to 40% this was so low it was the lower limit of the measuring device without oxygen her brain would swell and cause damage her heart rate had declined to 60 beats a minute The situation was becoming critical and other anaesthetists came in from the other theatres. The ENT surgeon was now in there. So three of the main doctors were trying to solve the problem. The margin for error had started to shrink. Every decision had a potentially life and death consequence. But thankfully, there's a procedure that can be used. It's called a tracheostomy. So the great advantage is you avoid the mouth altogether. And you go in through a little, you literally make a hole in the trachea. The nurses correctly assumed this was what was going to happen. And Jane ran out to get the tracheostomy set. She brought it back in and said, it's ready here. At 8.47, they shot a glance back at her, but for some reason they didn't respond. They were continuing to try and force the tube into her mouth. They were absorbed in their attempts. Jean hesitated. Should she say it again? She might interrupt them. She might disturb them. Maybe they'd already thought of it. They were the three experienced doctors in the room. She was the most junior there. She better not say anything. By now, the doctors had elevated heart rates. And Elaine was now a deep blue. Her heart rate was a mere 40 beats per minute. She was starved of oxygen. They persisted in their frantic attempts to get the tube in. Jane continued to wonder if she should say something, but her voice died in her throat. By 8.55, it was too late. By the time they got her oxygen saturation back up, Elaine was starved of oxygen for 20 minutes. She was transferred later to intensive care, and 13 days later, died. So it's a pretty dramatic start to the book. And the reason I read it out was because there's a place where when something like that happens, even listening to it, we begin to have a sort of a response in our own body and think, oh my God, what what would we have done? And how we respond and how we think we respond are often two very different things. Her husband, Martin, several weeks later asked about an investigation and he was told by the hospital well we don't usually investigate things like that unless someone's going to sue he worked in the aeronautics industry and couldn't understand that and so he wouldn't let it lie the book then brings us to the aeronautics industry and how they have a very different approach to failure than that of the medical industry and how we all know about the black box that's in every airplane. And the reason for it is if there's a crash, well, the data can be analyzed, not just to see what happened, but so that Procedures can be put in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. And the book gives loads of examples, sometimes really simple ones. There was one in the 40s where a Boeing B-17 bomber seemed to have these runway crashes. And somebody was brought in to assess the crashes. And the design of the cockpit was actually one of the reasons why this error was happening. Two buttons that were beside each other on the cockpit looked exactly the same. And in normal circumstances wouldn't have caused a problem. However, in a crisis situation when things were happening too fast, it was easy for the mistake to be made. And so they made a simple adjust. One of them was for the flaps. They made that button look like a flap. The other one was about letting down the wheels. They put a wheel, literally the shape of a wheel, on the knob. And accidents of that sort disappeared overnight. So again and again throughout the book, we're told how many ways the aeronautics industry learn from their failures and therefore have better successes. So then we're brought back to the medical system and He tells us a story of how 2014, there's a particular gentleman, his name is Professor Provenost, and he comes back up in the book again later. And he is in the Senate in the USA, and he essentially cites all of the research which shows that preventable preventable medical error is the third biggest killer in the United States. That's pretty staggering. And also, the figures are similar in the UK. And despite that, it's not actually an attack on the medical system, but more a query and a question as to how come, if the equivalent of two jumbo jets are falling out of the sky, killing people every day within the medical world, we simply don't consider it normal or useful to review mistakes. And that is part of the story of the book. So then it goes on to describe, which I thought was fascinating, and I'm going to ask you to think about even your own response in your body when I was reading out the excerpt at the beginning. It says that in high-pressure, high-risk environments, a signature response tends to happen for most of us. And that is that we hyper focus on the particular problem that we think needs to be solved so in the case of elaine's pre-theater situation the problem that the doctors had and that they hyper focused on was they wanted to get the particular tube into elaine's mouth now in some ways that is good But what also comes in this signature response that we all have in these environments is we have a narrowing of focus as well. And what that means for us is that we fail to see other problems that may exist in the same situation. So they never really seem to pay much attention to the fact that our oxygen sats were so low. And we also miss other potential solutions that we could have, the tracheotomy set was there beside them, beside the theatre table, and they never saw it as such. This happens to all of us as humans, and it's worth paying attention that this does happen. And the other piece that was interesting was social hierarchy often gets in the way of assertiveness. Jane struggled to I suppose, put her hand up again because she felt she wasn't high up enough, the food chain, as it were. And it brought me to lots of situations, particularly in nursing, but also in other arenas when my status meant it felt safer to say nothing when, in actual fact, it may have been more useful to challenge what was happening. And that happens often, apparently, in our mistakes. So the other piece about that was then this same gentleman, Mr. Professor Provenost. Uh, He was an anaesthetist himself by training. So this is the gentleman that had the um, report to the Senate. And he gives an example of very early in his training when he was an anaesthetist. And during a surgery, the patient had an allergic response. And he assumed by the patient's response that she was allergic to latex. So she t- he told the surgeon, I think it's a latex allergy. You should go and change your gloves. They're just over there. There's other ones there. The surgeon decided it wasn't. And so wouldn't. And a big stand-up occurs in the theater, which under most circumstances, the person who's actually operating their head honcho, just like the captain of the airplane or the ship, is usually not challenged. In this situation, Provenost himself continued to challenge the status quo and actually got one of the nurses to ring the dean of the hospital. And it was only when the number was being dialed that the surgeon swore blind and went and changed his gloves. It turned out afterwards that the patient was actually allergic to latex. So we have these sort of examples of how we sometimes refuse to acknowledge our own mistakes or even the thought of our own mistakes. So what was going on for the surgeon? It wasn't well, perhaps it was just ego, but actually the other thing that happens for us when we are challenged is cognitive dissonance. So it was one of those things that, you know, you think you know something and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that thing. But actually, I didn't really understand it. It happens to every single one of us when two values or rights that we have are in some ways at odds with each other. He gives an example in the book, a very simple one, of while he was writing the book, he chose to join a gym on the other side of town. It took about 30 minutes to get there. And his wife at the time said, that might be a bit far. You might be better to join the gym next door. But he had decided he wanted to join that one and don't be telling me what to do sort of thing. And so over the course of the following few months, it took him longer and longer to get to the gym. And he began to not go and not turn up. And it took him one whole year before he, I suppose, changed his approach and realized, actually, it would be just easier to go to the gym next door. So that's one example of how when we think we're right, we don't want to be budged on it. That's a fairly simple one, but it can also be pretty significant, as in have significant outcomes. And he brings us then in the book into the judicial system and how you'd imagine that With the arrival of DNA testing in the mid 80s, that the judiciary were delighted because now they had a tool that could definitively put someone in jail. And so they were. However, when a number of organizations began to take on the cases of those who felt they were who claimed that they were wrongly convicted of crimes and use that same DNA evidence. To actually prove their innocence, the same judiciary took sometimes two, three, four, six, even longer years to actually release the men and women and be able to acknowledge that mistakes were made even though the evidence was there to show that it was. And this is something that we all tend to do. We convert our own belief and we modify the evidence that we see and we reframe things rather than actually say, you know what, maybe I was wrong. There's a lovely sentence in it. It said, DNA evidence may be strong, but not as strong as the desire to protect our own self-esteem and our previously held beliefs. Which is sort of shocking. And the book then talks about the other aspect of behavior that happens when there's a mistake has been made, and that's about blame and how we tend as a society to look for a scapegoat, to have someone to blame when we hear about a mistake happening. And there are lots of examples given in the in the book. And this These days is often driven by, I'm going to say, shoddy journalism and social media, uh, very often looking for a scapegoat. But I suppose the question also I asked of myself when I was uh, reading the book was where have I actually in the past looked for blame? And can I ask you to have a think about where your mind went when I was reading the little excerpt at the front? Because I know when I read it first, I was thinking, Jane, say something. Why didn't Jane say something? Would she not just say something? But having been in that situation, you'd have been taken out sometimes if you said something in an environment like that. But my instinct was to see which one of them could be culpable or was most culpable. And the book talks about when we look at failure, it's not that we're not trying to find blame. Because sometimes blame is appropriate. Sometimes someone is deliberately negligent. But actually, if we start out looking to find someone to blame, we miss the learning completely. And how it's much more useful if we actually try and understand what happened. And sure, then afterwards, if there is blame needed, so be it. But we have a very different learning experience if we do that. Um, Then the book goes through a big, chunky piece of, yeah, some great stuff and some heavy-duty stuff. To be honest, by then I was wrecked. (laughs) There was a lot of stuff I was going, wow. Okay, but I'm going to confine it very quickly to a few sentences. He talks about marginal gains and how if we have a big goal, If we break it down into lots of small goals and look for improvements across all of them, we're going to do and deliver much greater success than if we simply try and wrestle with it in its entirety. He gave examples across cycling, Formula One, and also the impact of aid relief in Africa as examples of how this actually works. The book also then talks about failure driving innovation, And the fact that if we include failure as part of our process for learning, we get massive innovation and creativity. Uh, Dyson have uh, an ideology that you must be willing to try, fail and learn in order to be creative. And I thought it was interesting. He said that 5,127 prototypes were developed by Dyson before he actually brought the vacuum cleaner to market. That's a lot of prototypes and a lot of failing. And the next piece that goes on naturally from that is that grit, resilience, and discipline is what wins in the end. Because Dyson wasn't actually the first to come to market or to come to the patents office with the Cyclone technology. There were several more before him but he was the one who was willing to go through 5,127 failures or 126 failures to get the result he did. Gillette then weren't the first safety razor and Polaroid weren't the first instant camera. All of those had simply pushed and continued with grit and resilience to get their product in the end. So there's a huge amount book and I've really only scratched the surface of it in relation to personal learning from mistakes and how when we take it from just looking at oh isn't it awful the way institutions do that and examine how I myself tend not to not want to either acknowledge or learn from a mistake there's a lot that we can learn and I'm sure I'm going to read this book again I'm going to finish with two different quotes that perhaps uh, yeah, explain the two aspects of the book, perhaps. One is by a headmistress called Heather Hanbury. You're not born with fear of failure. It's not an instinct. It's something that grows and develops in you as you get older. Very young children have no fear of failure at all. They've great fun trying new things and learning very fast. There is no point in failing and dealing with it by pretending it didn't happen or blaming someone else. That would be a wasted opportunity to learn more about yourself and perhaps to identify gaps in your skills, experiences, or qualifications. Because once you've identified the learning, you can then take action that makes a difference. I thought it was. A beautiful quote that I'm certainly going to dip back in and out of again. And then just to finish, Elaine's husband Martin continued for very many years working as a volunteer in an organization that encouraged the medical system and still does encourage the medical system to view adverse events and accidents as an opportunity for learning rather than something to be ignored or couched in words that he was told, which is it's just one of those things or an unfortunate complication. And he talks about here just one or two sentences from him. He says, there's been undoubtedly been progress in many areas of healthcare. 10 years ago, hospital acquired infections like MRSA were dismissed as one of those things. They were considered an inevitable problem that we couldn't do much about. Today, there is real desire to confront these problems and figure out how to prevent harm in the future. But that mindset is no means universal. You only have to look at the sheer deaths both in the UK and around the world to see that there is still a profound tendency to cover up mistakes and a fear about what independent investigations might uncover. We need to flip this attitude 180 degrees. It's the single most important issue in healthcare, and for me in terms of learning and asking that any book would give me anything, it's that if I can flip my approach to how I fail, how I screw up, how I manage the cognitive dissonance when that happens, then there's bound to be more improvements and more chance for success. The questions I'm left with What structures, what organisations am I in? And that includes my family, where perhaps uh, social hierarchies play a part. Is it because I'm too far down the food chain or is it because I'm a head honcho somewhere? And in doing so, I block or get in the way of feedback about my failure. Um, And the other piece, I suppose, that was useful was... How can I break my goals down into smaller pieces and look for improvements across those smaller pieces so that when it comes back together, I can have better success? That's my, what is it, I think, 20 minutes or so, an awful lot squashed into the time involved. I hope it's been um, of help and encourage you to go read the book. It's genuinely amazing. And we could just be here all night doing it. I'm sure someone else could now take off and lear- tell us what they learned. But hopefully it was of some help to you this evening. Thank you.
2: Well done, Ashley. Lovely
3: Brilliant, thanks. Lovely journey
2: of it. Uh, yeah, I think you could get hired to um do audio books to uh for for maybe putting kids to sleep as well, L- lullabies and things like that. You know, really <laughs> well, good.
4: Actually, you have the most wonderful accent. I could listen to you all the time. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah, I've been told some of the my clients have asked me for and I do little recordings for them actually to to come down out of their head and into their body. Yes, I've heard that before. The only thing is if you're talking for 20 minutes, you don't actually want people to start dribbling and falling asleep. It's not it's not your preferred outcome. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions or comments or has anyone else read the book, by the way?
5: Actually, for me, I, I thought it was magic. I read I read the book, but it's kind of you've almost prompted me now to even go back into it again because, as you said, it's it there's so much in it. Like, but it's after wetting the appetite a bit. I suppose the big thing there is that like there's so much evidence and there's so much compelling evidence around embracing failure, and we see it every day of our lives and we experience it ourselves. Like, just even your own reflection on why people are so resistant to. Failing when clearly it's a great thing. Left.
1: Well, I think that's why the quote from that headmistress was so poignant. I thought, you know, when you see a two-year-old learning something, they're not shamed because I think shame, and, and I think it obviously depends from culture to culture, but shame is a great all one here in Ireland, you know. <laughs> so, so they're they're not that they're as she says they're delighted and they'll just keep trying and they might. get frustrated that we tend to associate with with failure when we're doing adult stuff
5: yeah and what advice would you have for anybody who's maybe just holding themselves back a bit through fear of failure
1: well my um head hack always is to get over myself it's why i put my hand up to do this and then i was going oh my god why did i do it mostly mostly we're in our own head, wondering how we're doing, and yeah. So, so all of the time, I know for several years, I considered doing, you know, little videos on Instagram or in those sort of places, Facebook before that, and I and I I'd keep pulling back in case I got it wrong or I screwed up or I made a mistake or it wasn't perfect or it wasn't exactly how I want. Do you know what? I'm not on. I'm not on CNN. There isn't a global audience. Get over yourself, Ashley, and just give it a go. And what's the worst that'll happen? And it's mostly what I'm thinking in my head. Nothing else. Yeah. That's is that, is that
5: action re- imperfect action trumps perfect inaction. Yeah.
1: Completely. Completely. Actually,
4: I could relate a lot to what you just said. That for years you've been putting off the the little videos and um myself been putting off for five years um <laughs> something i wanted to start doing and the advice from so many uh great people intelligent people is that you just have to do it because it's in your head and if you think that there is an even small nugget of value to your audience um just do it for them not for yourself because you're afraid to 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 be out there and not not being perfect not being slick um if you just think of a person on the other side who is looking for this piece of information that you already have and you're kindly sharing then it it, it should help you and certainly help me um so yeah i could relate to it J- just do it just kind of stop 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 being afraid of failure and uh, you get better each time and the way you told the story i could just listen to you from a Many hours. Um, the beginning was I could literally wasn't breathing. You know, uh, it was so uh, <laughs> such a culmination. What's going to happen? And um, um, yeah, so 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 brilliant. Just to to sum up, uh, the way you tell the story, the way you you um, got over that fear of putting yourself out there uh, speaks for, for itself.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
3: How old is the book, actually?
1: You know what? I had it somewhere where it was. Let me see. Was it for some reason I have two thousand and fifteen in my head or sixteen in my head?
3: Because I have a memory of a, but way before that, might be ten years ago, someone saying, very similar to your story, the, the crossover, the learning from aviation into medicine, where pilots are great for checklists because they, they don't trust rightly so they don't trust themselves you know that they'll forget something very vital mm-hmm. so the checklist is ingrained into a pilot from the start and then maybe the surgeons might have better opinion of their own abilities and they, they think they look down on a checklist as being you know too simple a tool but i think it, it, it's been proven that uh, bringing simple checklists into the operating theater uh, following the aviation model is a big improvement in in, in safety and, and reducing problems. Yeah.
1: And the thing is, both of the industries are complex. You know, you know oh. I, as someone, and I worked in theatre, and I remember, you know, it's 200 years ago, I worked in theatre, but but I remember at the time when it came out about, you know, that you would write, you know, L or R to <laughs> indicate. And it seems so simple. And I remember thinking, you could say so obvious. Should it hardly take off the wrong leg? But wrong legs were amputated. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds funny, but it's not like they were. <laughs> and and it's often the simple and the obvious will will make it easy. And when you have loads of time and there's no pressure, I suppose it's not you're not, you're not going to make a mistake. But just like that two little knobs in the 40s when they put one that looked like a wheel and one that looked like a flap beside it therein ended the runway crashes for those planes fairly yeah. really dramatic
3: there's another uh, piece of training that's essential for um pilots called mcc multi-crew cooperation where like you said the pilot the captain of the flight is uh, in charge his his word is law but multi-crew cooperation teaches or, or encourages the junior pilot to speak up when he sees something wrong mm-hmm. and to have the you know the to, to have the ability to take over if he sees you know maybe the captain is incapacitated or stubborn or something but uh like that again those those little lessons you 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 showed an example of that not working in the medical practice,
1: and and there was an example given in the book about a particular flight and the recording. It's very tragic because it actually prompted that um, I suppose challenging uh, hierarchy, um, mm-hmm. and that's the training that came is that exact one you talk about because a junior member uh, a junior pilot kept pointing out that they were running out of fuel in a particular situation. But the captain was so hyper-focused on a particular piece of equipment that he thought was malfunctioning that he simply didn't realize the time passing. And they crashed and were all killed because of lack of fuel. And the, the black box pointed out that although the junior pilot mentioned it, he didn't want to challenge yeah. the status quo so yeah it, it's pretty significant pretty significant and you think about it you know there's probably very few of us here on the call that have been in a situation where we haven't encountered that hierarchy getting in the way of a good result you know
4: what would really help um, is the is the ex- example um I've have you heard, guys, of Brenna Brown, incredible sociologist? So in her book, There to Lead, she gives example how she works with her own team in her own organization. Um, she asks them, where did she screw up as a leader? Where, where did I get wrong? And, and she, she worked hard to, to create the, the culture where people, her senior team, are able to express it sitting all around the table and, and telling her, Renee you you're excellent at this, at this, but you're not good at setting the deadlines. You, you, you cannot estimate how long certain pieces of work will take us. And we, we completely overworked, and I don't remember specific words, but... This type of example is incredible for for any leader who is trying to create the the culture in the in the organizations or in your own household. You know, <laughs> like I'm I'm telling my children that sometimes I I also screw up. I, I'm not perfect. So to so, so tell me where did I get wrong, where you want me to improve, and I see that that they're learning. That's absolutely fine. To actually um, challenge the, the the hierarchy in your own family and then the same in your own organizations um, just by using Brunet's example
1: for sure, for One sure. Of the
0: i was going to just ask uh, excellent job by the way it was brilliant brilliant review so thank you so much thank you sarah um, i just wanted to ask around to your point um uh, mariana just around there's probably a responsibility for leaders to create psychological safety so that Uh, everyone within a team or an organization have that confidence to speak out when they see something. Did he go into any detail around how to create those teams, cultures, environments in the book?
1: Not really. He spoke more about how they don't work and what were the reasons behind them not working. Mm. And the only place that he gave examples of success working was around examining failure like the Dysons and in in where you broke down um things like in Aid to Africa when you broke down the goals into smaller goals and actually did. Uh, what are they called, randomized controlled trials to check your results afterwards. But he didn't really get into how do you begin to what I would call excavate out those old behaviors and patterns. How do you do that? Because to his point, I suppose, the whole time is the way you do it is by looking at where you screwed up. <laughs> and, and if you do that, that starts to give evidence that, that you can't yeah. ignore but but what struck me was we we do funny things with information when we don't when we don't want to to believe them or think they happen so so it's not only that we don't learn from our mistakes sometimes we don't even acknowledge that they happened at all so so they're invisible to us mm. because of this cognitive dissonance that goes on and and we will i loved his words we do Um, internal gymnastics to try and make something fit so that even in the example of the judiciary where the DNA evidence exonerated people, they were waiting years for people to be able to be released from prison because the same courts that were using DNA to prosecute and to put people away refused to believe it. They were coming up with all sorts of mad uh, excuses for what could have happened but no to answer your question no and not that, mm. that i saw in it at all mm. and it's it's a tough job for a leader because, yes. because because there's a lot of this stuff has to happen mm. you know you you're leading ahead very often and and in a in a solo way and at the same time you have to go behind and check that that all aspects are working but i think it's about continual continually checking Is it getting the result I want? And is there something I'm missing?
0: Yeah. In some of the other book reviews we've done over last year, um, a number of um, books covered the Navy SEALs approach to this, the after action reviews that they would do where after every mission they would they would sit down and assess. Um, what went wrong and what they could improve on. But I think what's really interesting in what you're saying and what was covered in this book is that we actually have these cognitive biases that stop us from even being able to evaluate properly. So it's how you overcome that blocker as well is is maybe the second layer. Um, That's only doing it the reviews well. Then you have to create a culture where this is all okay. So there's a lot of steps to this. There
1: are. He offered one, one suggestion for teams working on a complex project, uh, which I was telling my husband about, I said you should really do this, and he called it a pre-mortem. And rather than so, so he had a situation where you have a very complex project that needed to be delivered, and at a certain period, not immediately before launch, obviously, but at a certain period in the life cycle of the project, as it's. A, a huge amount of the work is done he suggested that it was useful to bring all of the parties into the table and ask them if you could imagine that this project has now gone live and failed miserably and so so take that as as happened it's failed miserably why do you reckon that was mm. Now, the reason why that way of asking the question, you see, if you ask it, how do you think this might fail? Now I have to put my ego on the line or perhaps some of my performance on the line, something I, why didn't I bring this to you before? If, however, you presuppose that this has launched and it has failed miserably, you sort of take that bias or that ego piece out of the way and you, Say, give us your tuppence, halfpenny worth there and tell us, if you were to put money on it, what do you think was the reason it failed? Mm -hmm. And and taking that slightly, you're you're past the event uh, and Mm -hmm. and it's only hypothetical. You allow more openness, apparently, Mm -hmm. and people are more likely to say, well, actually, I always said there was a problem with Mm the…
4: That's a very (laughs) good point, Ashlyn. It's quite often how you ask and in what tone you ask. And then once you get those right, you can ask anything that I've heard it from few sources, don't remember the name.
1: Yeah. And I just thought a pre-mortem. Okay, so that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. And it just relieved people of any um I suppose pressure because this was a hypothetical situation that had already happened. Mm. Um, and but it very often disclosed much more potential areas for uh, error or failure, than asking, we're nearly there, guys. Is there any gaps that we think we have? Mm. We're not likely to put our hands up to that.
4: On 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 that point, very interesting. I, I was talking about this actually today. Um, the project management as a discipline is is changing. The 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 exam that we professional project managers. Get um, uh, evaluated, um, uh, get certified is is change is changing this year, where the the linear model, where you would have your cycle and you would see the product close to the end, uh, after you've gone through so many you know stages, requirement gathering and all the rest. Now it's it's very much half of it has to be the agile, hybrid, scrum type that that you guys just referenced, Navy SEALs, you know, retrospects. There there are names for for those methodologies. And it's all down to breaking down the complex into the smaller pieces and seeing those smaller pieces almost at the beginning of the project, just show me the the small piece of a bigger piece so I can see whether we actually heading in the right direction rather than we... Two weeks to go in live with something that is not going to work, you know. So, um, yeah, that's, that's
1: my and I think it's what you know, Sarah. You're you're mentioning about too. That's the challenge of leadership because you have to be at big picture level and and yeah, at big picture level mm. while at the same time hopefully have have a team that's at small picture and detail level that aren't afraid to communicate to you about about what's actually happening as opposed to what you want to hear. Yeah, yeah.
0: Neve has just written a comment in. Uh, <laughs> well, I read it out for you, Neve? You said you didn't want to come off mute. <laughs> she, <laughs> <just> said, <laughs> she said the connection between failure and innovation is very interesting. It seems if it is so connected, it's really important that we look at how to create those environments. It's a great point
4: yeah on um. that if i can comment guys again back to the brand and then there's a fascinating talk on the netflix and uh, she 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 she's asked quite often by the top ceos of the companies in the world to come and give a talk and she's asking well, what would you like me to talk uh, and uh, quite often they say um yeah well, talk about the innovation but, but don't mention you know being uh, i've uh, been been kind of uh, embracing the failure and all that just just go with the kind of uh, we want people to innovate and be creative and give us a lot of value and she said i will not because those two things are inseparable and then she talks about the the soldiers and battlefield and do they actually uh, wh- when do they feel most afraid and quite often they feel afraid the time when they also feel you know brave and courageous and uh, um So, yeah, they are are two inseparable, Uh, back to Neve's comment.
1: Yeah. Uh, One of the things I remember hearing, and I don't know, I can't credit the source, I remember hearing that, that we all feel scared and we sometimes wait to feel brave brave is an action it's not a feeling exactly <laughs> and, and if we wait to feel brave we could be waiting because brave is an action and we can feel very scared while doing brave yeah. and 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 I think that's leadership in action really is yeah. when we're willing to do that and yeah sometimes we'll fall on our bum and yeah. make a mess of it. <laughs> so that's that's true. It. um
4: to, to add to it, uh, I think Tim Ferriss is the is the guy who's uh uh are quoting the stoicism and how we can how we can all get um, ourselves to to become more courageous and, and so more innovative by uh, saving a bit of money and knowing that you know if you get uh, if you get sucked and in most cases we don't get sucked actually uh, we're gonna be fine. So that actually makes us to be more courageous. That actually makes us more creative. And that actually makes us more valuable. If only we get in our head that um, we're actually going to be fine, we will survive if, if we're going to be asked to leave because we are that brave and, and, and we talk about things that are obvious um, as solutions, but nobody have a courage, we're actually going to benefit from it. Um, I don't know whether you guys, you've heard the, this type of idea some getting your courageousness <laughs> trained in this way but um, that resonated with me I agree with the guy
1: for sure for sure I work for myself so I can't sack myself really <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs>
2: I am um... <clears throat> It was it was great, Ashley. Yeah, br- brilliant to um, to hear some of the the examples as well. But as you were reading it, I I, I dived and found this book. It's called Better, S- Smarter, Faster, Better. Charles Duhigg. Um and in a way, like I think this came out around the same time. And there's a huge parallels between the two of them. Uh, uh, in, in 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 like not in a scary way, but it just it's funny. Around that time. Cognitive dissonance became a very popular term. and A lot of people started to, to pick up on and the story in this book, again, about um, I think it was about Air France Flight 447, where they talked about cognitive dissonance, but also the term he used here, cognitive tunneling, was where they just had the tunnel vision, narrow focus, like similar, like you said, he just put his own term on it, that um, all the dials were pointing that you were 200 feet from the the ocean and they were ignoring them and they just they crashed and um they did obviously the the black box and and learned from it as well but there was also parallels or stories around the medical profession in here in this book as well um a different story but again i think i don't know if it was related to the trachea but it was another procedure that was just going wrong and the nurse could see it in plain sight and just didn't speak up because of the the social um, hierarchy or, or just felt didn't have the psychological safety. Which is, yeah, it's it's mad that um, that they were so similar to stories and both both extremely popular books. I would recommend it. And just on on that, Matthew Said's other book, Bounce. Has anyone read his other book, Bounce? That's all, all. Have you heard Stanford. of it? Yeah, Stanford. you've read it. Yeah, yeah, very good. And it's all about the kind of 10,000 hours, the myth around becoming, you know, the mm. the, the becoming at a mastery level at the 10,000 hours, um, the challenge people face when they choke, you know, when they're freeze mm. on, on, the, on the, the highest stage as well. Because um, he himself was a, an Olympic table tennis player, he actually got to the Olympics and he could talk about with experience what it felt like to choke in, in in the biggest stage. So I would recommend that one if you haven't read it as well. It's not just about sport. It's about deliberate practice effectively of how you, um, yeah, how you go in rather than just free form practice, how you chunk it up and focus on, you know, if you do a thousand forehands and a thousand backhands rather than playing all the time. Um, there's really good stories in that one about, Grandmaster chess players as well, and how they became, um, how, how through pure practice in deliberate ways you can get to that level. So it's not. I think they he debunked Beethoven that he wasn't just this child prodigy. He from the age of three he was playing the piano ten hours a day, and so by the time he was thirteen he was a master. So um, you know, there's hope for us all. Effectively, that's what he's saying. You know,
5: that's some nice stuff <laughs> well, right about the. To Sarah's point earlier about the the environment, like what sort of environment do people flourish in? I mm. think like three gold medalists in the space of like six houses on one road, mm-hmm. um, all because of the environment was just set up for people to flourish at table tennis. Yeah, really, really good book as well.
2: Yeah, that was a, yeah, and, and and the the two chess players. I think it was two female chess players. Their parents were grand, or their father was a grandmaster, and. He he had twins or there was three girls in the family and they all, I think they all became grandmasters, um, which again was, I think he had a bet on at a very early age that they would uh, and, and they did. So just, yeah, fascinating stuff.
0: Nick and I were actually on a Zoom with him on Monday. So uh, he's, he does some great talks. Uh, he's talking about cognitive diversity and just the importance of, pretty much what you were saying Ashley about looking at things from a different perspective and how important it is for each of us to do that as well as drawing from others
1: and how challenging it is because yeah because we our view is our view unless we force it to be something else which isn't yeah. always easy yeah great
4: tips what what's the advice to what advice could you give to to get better in in, in viewing through the different set of glasses, uh, I
1: guess? Well, I think for me, I like to literally put myself in a different perspective to look at it from the viewpoint of someone else. So what it would look like for someone else in that situation, looking on in that situation. Um, and it, it depends hugely on, on the situation you're talking about, sometimes that, even if we do that, I'm still only looking at it with my view. Mm -hmm. And that's where feedback from someone else becomes juggler, honest feedback from other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, That helps, yeah, for sure. Because that's how we learn.
5: Yeah. Amazon have a great thing called the empty chair that they have at every single meeting that's effectively the customer and the customer sits in the empty chair so they can really be talking about great innovations and all that kind of stuff but then they'll always turn to the empty chair and say well what what would the customer think here
4: mm, very and good that,
5: that gives them a sort of a different sort of a lens or a different perspective mm-hmm. they're actually on track
1: yeah
0: yeah
1: and because somebody coming from a different perspective, I mean, they they literally may throw something into the mix that we would have never thought about. If if I had thought twenty different perspectives, I may not have thought of something that another human being will see and notice as soon as they walk into the situation. So it's about yeah being as you were talking about Sarah, having the environment that 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 sort of information can come into us and is is welcomed. Uh, In even if it doesn't tell us what we want to hear, yeah,
4: yeah. As well as leaders uh, managing the 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 introverts that that sometimes can't um, really be the most vocal um, speakers in the room, but have deep thoughts and a lot of value to add and um, different uh, problems. So.
1: yeah and we'll very often have considered it a lot more in a lot more detail perhaps than than some of the extroverts in yeah. in the meeting yeah for yeah. sure for sure
4: i read an interesting blog um that became quite popular um I remember the the name of the of the, of the guy on the medium and uh, um the the title was how to to pinpoint who is the real contributor in your team uh, when you come in as a new leader. And interestingly, the um, example was given where the leader would ask, say, in in the marketing domain, would ask very kind of a dim question first and just see who is going to jump in to answer. It's like, what does the... um, could you remind me what does SEO stands for? Something in the area where people would would be assumed to know, right? And then, um, so the advice was, whoever jumps in to answer first, they usually people they just wanna really show off. <laughs> Then whoever whoever sits back um, uh, uh, and think that they that they they are the people that uh, very likely be introverts and got a lot to add because after the very kind of a easy question then the second question is very deeply intelligent and requires a lot of thoughts and that's where the usually people who would jump first would kind of a oh I'm glad I already answered that <laughs> so the, the, the I found the the way the blog was written, this was quite interesting and because it became so popular and was read so many times, obviously I wasn't the only one who found that approach interesting.
1: For sure. For sure.
2: Any closing comments for for Ashley? We have our, our, our guest speaker lined up for two weeks' time. Mariana, you're all set to go for that one, so we don't have to put anyone on the spot tonight. That's good. John, you're decidedly quiet tonight. What's wrong? I'm picking on you.
1: I was just
4: thinking John's uh, skeleton in the background there could try his hand at that goat, uh, goats on Zoom, you know, That's skeletons on Zoom might have a, a chance in the future.
3: His, his name is Alfred, yeah. I can I can give him to you for five pounds uh for five minutes.
5: <laughs>
3: Alfred arrived at Halloween about ten years ago and he um we never put him away. He just sits there. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, um, yeah, no, I'm Rob. Maybe I'm tired tonight, so it's okay. I'll be, uh, I'll be fully energetic next time.
2: <laughs> Very good. So we, week? will we will uh, we wrap it up? Sorry, um, Susan.
4: I was just saying, what what is the book Marianne is doing? Make time. Oh, make time. Oh, I need yeah. Time. <laughs> um Jeff Knapp and John Zeratsky for I remember the name um they, they were New York bestsellers of a book uh, called Sprint and that's their um as a book that became quite popular I've done quite a bit of a research personally to find the book that will make me meaningfully productive um and that's the the best I found so um Looking forward to present it to
1: you. Excellent. Looking forward to it too. It's good. Be great. Well, thanks, guys. I thoroughly enjoyed myself, and uh, hope you found it useful. And looking forward to uh, two weeks' time for Mariana. Be great.
2: Great stuff. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you,
4: Ashley. It was great. Nice work. Thank you.
2: Good night. Bye. Good night, folks. Good night.
3: stay safe guys see you next time thanks for calling good luck bye bye thanks stay warm
2: hey folks thanks so much for listening to the show if you enjoyed it could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further you can do that in a number of ways the number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call, and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% better Slack community, which you can join for free and interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey, and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it so do reach out rob at rob of the green dot ie and of everybody that listens 90% listen and enjoy but only around 10% actually take action write down takeaways and put them into practice I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.